Thank you for joining us again for our public domain read-along featuring Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Hey, hey, Charlotte Bronte. (laughs) Oh, God. Rosé all day with Charlotte Bronte. Stop it. This is what the Gen Zers think we're like. (laughs) We're not. It's satirical. Rosé all day, Charlotte Bronte. Jane Eyre. (laughs) Nothing must offend someone with an Arabic last name or something more than white people's complete ability to correctly pronounce Jane Eyre. The fact that we don't look at that name and go, Irie, Eyre. Yeah. But we can't pronounce like... Hassan. Hassan, yeah. We're like, oh, is it Hassan? Hassan? I mean, close enough, right? Like, I guess. <laughs> I like that's the thing that kills me, right? Where it's like, people are like, why can't you just have like normal names, like anglicized names? What they mean by normal is anglicized. Right. And it's like, you just fucking tore down on Khaleesi, the Dothraki, and Minas Tirith, and all of the realms of men, yeah. and Gimli, son of Gloin's entire lineage, yeah. and you choose not to pronounce Hassan correctly? Yeah. Like, get out of here. But also, like, Ayer. Like, this last name is spelled E-Y-R-E. Think of all the ways you could get that wrong. And think oh, of yeah. how infrequently people do. Yeah. Wild. So, Isabeau, you're going to be reading the even chapters, which means this is your first time reading. What edition are you reading from? I'm reading from Oxford's World Classics. It's edited by Margaret Smith with an introduction and revised notes by Sally Shuttleworth. Oh, wow. Real team effort on your edition. It's very British. Super British. We find out none of those people are British. (laughs) I don't know. With a last name like Shuttleworth? Shuttleworth. I just don't think that they're from Iowa, but like, you know. She does sound like an actual butler. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, let's get started. Pull up a chair by a crackling fire. Put your woolly socks. Don't do that. It's so hot. It's so hot. Maybe for our friends on the other side of the equator. Make yourself comfortable. This chapter's a doozy. Should probably do a quick little recap of what happened in chapter one. Sure. Our heroine is a young girl. She is a ward of another family, and she is reading a book about waterfowl when she ends up physically attacked by her mean boy cousin, and her aunt orders her to be taken to a red room and locked inside. Let's get spooky. Chapter two. I resisted all the way. A new thing for me, but a circumstance which greatly strengthened the bad opinion Bessie and Miss Abbott were disposed to entertain of me. The fact is, I was a trifle beside myself, or rather out of myself, as the French would say. I was conscious that a moment's mutiny had already rendered me liable to strange penalties, and like any other rebel slave, I felt resolved in my desperation to go all lengths. Hold her arms, Miss Abbott, she's like a mad cat. For shame, for shame, cried the lady's maid. What shocking conduct, Miss Eyre, to strike a young gentleman, your benefactress's son, your young master. Master, how is he my master? Am I a servant? No, you are less than a servant, for you do nothing for your keep. There, sit down and think over your wickedness. Snap. They had got me by this time into the apartment indicated by Mrs. Reed and had thrust me upon a stool. My impulse was to rise from it like a spring. Their two pairs of hands arrested me instantly. If you do not sit still, you must be tied down, said Bessie. Miss Abbott, lend me your garters. She would break mine directly. 
Miss Abbott turned to divest a stout leg of the necessary ligature. This preparation for bonds and the additionally ignominied inferred took a little of the excitement out of me. Don't take them off, I cried. I will not stir. And guarantee whereof I attach myself to my seat by my hands. Mind you, don't, said Bessie. And when she had ascertained that I was really subsiding, she loosened her hold of me. Then she and Miss Abbott stood with folded arms, looking darkly and doubtfully on my face, as incredulous of my sanity. She never did so before, at last said Bessie, turning to Abigail, but it was always in her, was the reply. I've told Mrs. Often my opinion about the child, and Mrs. agreed with me. She's an underhand little thing. I never saw a girl of her age with so much cover. Bessie answered not, but ere long addressing me, she said, You ought to be aware, miss, that you are under obligations to Mrs. Reed. She keeps you. If she were to turn you off, you would have to go to the poorhouse. I had nothing to say to these words. They were not new to me. My first recollections of existence included hints of the same kind. This reproach of my dependence had become a vague sing-song in my ear. Very painful and crushing, but only half intelligible. Miss Abbott joined in. And you ought not to think yourself on an equality with the Mrs. Reed and Master Reed, because Missus kindly allows you to be brought up with them. They will have a great deal of money, and you will have none. It is your place to be humble and to try to make yourself agreeable to them. What we tell you is for your good, added Bessie, in no harsh voice. You should try to be useful and pleasant. Then perhaps you would always have a home here. But if you become passionate and rude, Missus will send you away, I am sure. Besides, said Miss Abbott, God will punish her. He might strike her dead in the midst of her tantrums, and then where would she go? Come, Bessie, we will leave her. I wouldn't have her heart for anything. Say your prayers, Miss Eyre, when you are by yourself, for if you don't repent, something bad might be permitted to come down the chimney and fetch you away. God, I am such a Miss Abbott. I don't know when to stop. <laughs> but even Bessie, she's like, I'm trying to help you. Just shut your mouth and be pleasant, man. I've been listening to, you must remember this about Polly Platt, and she's working off of Polly Platt's own unpublished memoirs. Mm-hmm. I know I've talked to you about it before, but if you don't know, Polly Platt is a really influential producer who got her start as wife of Peter Bogdanovich. And then her whole world was turned upside down when he left her for Sybil Shepherd. Anyway, the opening chapter of her memoir talks about when she had to get shots because she was really sick as a little girl. And she was in a hospital in Germany because her father was stationed there right after the war. And she used to fight the shots and have just a terrible time, like four times a day when she would have to get these injections. And then at one point she realized like, they're not going to stop giving me the injections. Like four male nurses would walk in, which I say male nurses just to illustrate like a small little girl surrounded by four grown men. And they would hold her down so that they could administer the injection. And then one day she decided not to fight it. And it still hurt. It was still unpleasant. But it, the whole process itself was over sooner. And eventually all of these men started to like dote on her and be like, oh, she's such a good patient. You know, she sits so still and she says that that was the first real clear lesson about how to live that she received. That's really interesting and seems very timely. I've been binging ER Uh recently and the first two seasons are fucking baller. But there's this awful moment where George Clooney is like delivering a spinal tap to a four-year-old child and one of the residents is like, they stopped struggling and it was so hard to hold them down for so long for this very painful procedure. And then George Clooney says, yeah, he's subsided into it. And like everyone in the room just like absolutely like collapses into themselves about like how bad it is when the fight goes out of someone. And I was just like, fuck. 
Yeah, it is like this life lesson. I think in a way, I hope all of us learn it and it's not just, you know, women that we carry that experience. And the other aspect of it is like you do get doted on once you become this really passive figure. Yeah. And everyone tells you how nice you are. Mm -hmm. There are privileges to that kind of docility. Submission. Yeah. Yeah. As Bessie is trying to educate young Jane on. Indeed. They went, shutting the door and locking it behind them. The Red Room was a spare chamber, very seldom slept in. I might say never, indeed, unless when a chance influx of visitors at Gateshead Hall rendered it necessary to turn to account all the accommodation it contained. Yet it was one of the largest and stateliest chambers in the mansion, a bed supported on massive pillars of mahogany hung with curtains of deep red damask stood out like a tabernacle in the center. The two large windows with their blinds always drawn down were half shrouded in festoons and falls of similar drapery. The carpet was red, the table at the foot of the bed was covered with a crimson cloth, the walls were a soft fawn color with a blush of pink in it, the wardrobe, the toilet table, the chairs were of darkly polished old mahogany. Out of these deep surrounding shades rose high and glared white, the piled up mattresses and pillows of the bed spread with a snowy Marseillaise counterpane. Scarcely less prominent was an ample cushioned easy chair near the head of the bed, also white with a footstool before it and looking as I thought like a pale throne. This room was chill because it seldom had a fire. It was silent because remote from the nursery and kitchens, solemn because it was known to be so seldom entered. The housemaid alone came here on Saturdays to wipe from the mirrors and the furniture weeks quiet dust, and Mrs. Reed herself at far intervals visited to review the contents of a certain secret drawer in the wardrobe, where were stored divers parchments, her jewel casket, and a miniature of her deceased husband. And in those last words lies the secret of the Red Room, the spell which kept it so lonely in spite of its grandeur. <laughs> Mr. Reed had been dead nine years. It was in this chamber he breathed his last. Here he lay in state, hence his coffin was borne by the undertaker's men, and since that day a sense of dreary consecration had guarded it from the frequent intrusion. My seat, to which Bessie and the bitter Miss Abbott had left me riveted, was a low ottoman near the marble chimney piece. The bed rose before me to my right, and there was the high dark wardrobe with subdued broken reflections varying the gloss of its panels. To my left were the muffled windows, a great looking glass between them separated the vacant majesty of the bed and room. I was not quite sure whether they had locked the door, and when I dared move I got up and went to see. Alas, yes, no jail was ever more secure. I have to say something really interesting. Yeah. In my version, it says a great looking glass between them repeated the vacant majesty of the bed and room instead of separated hmm that is weird that is weird because this was originally published in english <laughs> yeah but i also a great looking glass between them so between the windows is a giant mirror which is like such a disorienting arrangement yeah and then seeing like the room repeated as if you're looking out another window in the middle that shows the space you are in you're looking out another window into where you are eerie yeah very scary it's also scary that we have two different translations of an english novel yeah mine says oxford's world's classics get out of here oxford's world classics so weird i have barnes and noble classics 
<laughs> That's what happens when a book enters the public domain, though. Remember, I had the hardest time finding a decent translation, air quotes, of Carmilla, which was also published in English. Totally. Oh, my God. Yeah. Boy, howdy. Okay. Alas, yes, no jail was ever more secure. Returning, I had to cross before the looking glass. My fascinated glance involuntarily explored the depth it revealed. All looked colder and darker in that visionary hollow than in the reality. And the strange little figure there gazing at me, with a white face and arms specking the room and glittering eyes of fear moving where all else was still, had the effect of a real spirit. I thought it like one of the tiny phantoms, half fairy, half imp. Bessie's evening story represented as coming out of lone, ferny dells and moors, and appearing before the eyes of belated travelers. I returned to my stool. Superstition was with me at that moment, but it was not yet her hour for complete victory. My blood was still warm. The mood of the revolted slave was still bracing me with its bitter vigor. I had to stem a rapid rush of retrospective thought before I quailed to the dismal present. All John Reed's violent tyrannies, all his sisters' proud and different all his mother's aversions, all the servants' partiality turned up in my disturbed mind like a dark deposit in a turbid well. Why was I always suffering, always browbeaten, always accused, forever condemned? Why could I never please? Why was it useless to try to win anyone's favor? Eliza, who was headstrong and selfish, was respected. Georgiana, who had a spoiled temper and a very acrid spite, a capacious and insolent carriage, was universally indulged. Her beauty, her pink cheeks, her golden curls seemed to give delight to all who looked at her and to purchase indemnity for every fault. John no one thwarted, much less punished, though he twisted the necks of the pigeons, killed the little peachicks, set the dogs at the sheep, stripped the hothouse vines of their fruit, and broke the buds off the choicest plants in the conservatory. He called his mother old girl, too, sometimes, <laughs> reviled her for her dark skin similar to his own, bluntly disregarded her wishes, not unfrequently tore and spoiled her silk attire, and he was still her own darling. I dared commit no fault. I strove to fulfill every duty, and I was termed naughty and tiresome, sullen and sneaking from morning till noon and from noon to night. Yeah, man. I also love, like, the casual terrifyingness of John Reed's violence. Like, it's not just at Jane. It's to all of this other stuff. It's to all things. He has only destructive energy. Like, nothing creative. Yeah. Or nothing even interpretive. It's all destructive. Right. And uh, also, you know, like, I really want to rewatch Mindhunter for maybe the fourth time. (laughs) You know, the development of that, like, serial killer stew where it's, like, head trauma, bedwetting. Yeah. And also this kind of stuff, just always wrecking stuff and, you know, setting fires and torturing animals. But the thing is, is, like, you know, I think we talk about this a lot, is, like, this is not irregular for young boys. No. And it is, indeed, indulged. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's hard to be, like, is he a sociopath or is he just boy? And, uh, you know, we talked the last time about how it's so clear that his mother has put all of this into him in some way. But I actually hate that I said that because I hate blaming mothers for stuff. But I guess it's all of us. I mean, everybody indulges him because they're all afraid of him. And like, this is like what male supremacy looks like. Yeah. And like how it's born from a young age. Like he's only 14 at this point. But what about Georgiana and Eliza? 
their cruel indifference. Well, Jane's kind of beef with the fact that like they have worse attitudes than I do and everyone loves them. She does talk about Georgiana being pretty, which it does get you a very nice life. We'll get to. But if I could imagine Jane Eyre as a real person, Mm -hmm. I would tell her people like energy, you know? They prefer energy to stagnancy. And so even if that energy is like negative in nature and your stagnancy is pretty like indifferent, you know, people are going to like the energetic response better. I don't know. What do you think of that? What do you think of Jane's reading of the other women, her peers in the room? I think she's really hurt by their indifference. Like they know that John's behavior is wrong. I think she's also hurt by Bessie. I think like Jane understands herself to be dutiful and it's like even if you do the thing that you're told to do and you're still repudiated like what does that mean like how can you ever play the game how can you figure it out and it's because like she can't ever meet the expectations because she's poor right like there's a class thing that's coming into here and she's also a profoundly unlovely child which is part of this and she doesn't smile on command and in so many ways it's like she won't conform to the expectations of childhood she won't conform to the expectations of like femininity feminine but also obsequious gratitude right like she has to just be so thankful that they feed her even though like literally this woman is her aunt yeah they are blood relations I think the resentment of the servants I think if we look at the people she's describing and what they all have in common is they all have an understanding that Jane is beneath them right and In order to maintain that status as small as it is, they have to maintain Jane as the lowest rung on the ladder. Right. And I think that's another part of it. My head still ached and bled with the blow and fall I had received. No one had reproved John for wantonly striking me, and because I had turned against him to avert further irrational violence, I was loaded with general opprobrium. Opprobrium? Should we look it up? Yeah, let's look that one up. (laughs) Let's get out our Webster's Dictionary. There is no shame in not knowing what a word means, even when you are as old as we are. Opprobrium. Opprobrium. Harsh criticism or censure. His films and the critical opprobrium they have generated. I was loaded with general opprobrium. That is such an unhelpful sentence. Truly it is. I was loaded with... What does that tell you? I was loaded with general censure. Can you imagine being at the National Spelling Bee and be like, could you use it as a sentence? Like, (laughs) I was loaded with general opprobrium. That guy had some general opprobrium. You'd be like, what the? (laughs) Unhelpful. Unhelpful. Opprobrium. Opprobrium. Try to use it today in a sentence. All right. I challenge all of you listeners. Opprobrium. Opprobrium. O-P-P-R-O-B-R-I-U-M. Opprobrium. 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 I wish that was a euphemism for penis, but like not in this context, <laughs> but like the more I say it, like the less it has attached itself to its meaning. It sounds like perineum too, which is a taint. Yeah, it kind of does. It, yeah, opprobrium. It's like, ooh, just tickle it. Just tickle it a little. Boys like it when you tickle their opprobrium. <laughs> they won't ask for it. They won't you know ask for do. it. So just offer it. 
Just offer it. Next time you're making love, say, do you want me to tickle your opprobrium? Opprobrium? Opprobrium. You know what? Even when we're reading Jane Eyre, we're still womance at our, at our core. We really are. At our core. Okay. Unjust. Unjust, said my reason, forced by the agonizing stimulus into precocious though transitory power and resolve equally wrought up, instigated some strange expedient to achieve escape from insupportable oppression as running away, or if that could not be effected, never eating or drinking more and letting myself die. I'm going to give you a quick round of applause for getting through that sentence. That was big. Thank you. It's just one sentence. Unjust, unjust, said my reason, forced by the agonizing stimulus into precocious though transitory power, semicolon, and resolve, capitalized, equally wrought up, instigated some strange expedient to achieve escape from insupportable oppression, dash, as running away, or, if that could not be affected, never eating or drinking more, and letting myself die. I'm actually kind of sad that there isn't an exclamation point at the end of that sentence, but... yeah. Wow, what a burn burner of a sentence. Holy shit, I love it. I know, I do too. I want to get it tattooed on my purse. (laughs) I was just thinking that, like right along my ribs. Unjust, unjust, said my reason. Forced by the agonizing stimulus into precocious though transitory power. Semicolon and resolve capitalized. And resolve. Equally wrought up. Instigated some strange expedient. I'm going to memorize it by the end of it. It's so good. What a consternation of soul was mine that dreary afternoon. How all my brain was in tumult and all my heart in insurrection. Yet in what darkness, what dense ignorance was the mental battle fought. I could not answer the ceaseless inward question why I thus suffered now at the distance of, I will not say how many years, I see it clearly. I was a discord in Gateshead Hall. Sorry, there are all of the exclamation points I know I just come on Charlotte I also love the perspective of a young person say I will not say how many years (laughs) (laughs) I see it clearly I was a discord in Gateshead Hall I was like nobody there I had nothing in harmony with Mrs. Reed or her children or her chosen vassalage. If they did not love me, in fact, as little did I love them. They were not bound to regard with affection a thing that could not sympathize with one amongst them, a heterogeneous thing, opposed to them in temperament, in capacity, in propensities, a useless thing, incapable of serving their interest or adding to their pleasure, a noxious thing, cherishing the germs of indignation at their treatment, of contempt of their judgment. I know that had I been a sanguine, brilliant, careless, exacting, handsome, romping child, though equally dependent and friendless, Mrs. Reed would have endured my presence more complacently. Her children would have entertained for me more of the cordiality of fellow feeling. The servants would have been less prone to make me the scapegoat of the nursery. But you're right. Like, it's the fact that, like, she occupies the lowest rung. Also brilliant to speak to just, like, having a sparkling personality. Totally, right? Like, what it means to be, like... A scintillating wit. Yeah. A Willoughby instead of a Darcy. Yes. Yes. As a side note, I have tried to fall asleep to people reading Pride and Prejudice out loud, and I just get too tickled by it. Oh, I know. And then I've also tried to fall asleep to people reading Bronte out loud, whether Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights, and then I get too spooked. Mm Mm-hmm. I agree. Scapegoat of the nursery. 
Daylight began to forsake the red room. It was past four o'clock and the beclouded afternoon was tending to drear twilight. I heard the rain still beating continuously on the staircase window and the wind howling in the grove behind the hall. I grew by degrees cold as a stone and then my courage sank. My habitual mood of humiliation, self-doubt, forlorn depression fell damp on the embers of my decaying ire. All said I was wicked and perhaps I might be so. What thought had I been but just conceiving of starving myself to death. That certainly was a crime. And was I fit to die? Or was the vault under the chancel of Gateshead Church an inviting born? In such vault I had been told did Mr. Reed lie buried, and led by this thought to recall his idea, I dwelt on it with gathering dread. I could not remember him, but I knew that he was my own uncle, my mother's brother, that he had taken me when a parentless infant to his house, and that in his last moments he had required a promise of Mrs. Reed that she would rear and maintain me as one of her own children. Mrs. Reed probably considered she had kept this promise, and so she had, I dare say, as well as her nature would permit her. But how could she really like an interloper, not of her race, and unconnected with her, after her husband's death by any tie? It must have been most irksome to find herself bound by a hard-wrung pledge to stand in the stead of a parent to a strange child she could not love, and to see an uncongenial alien permanently intruded on her own family group. The use of the term race to describe familial kin is so interesting and really brings home for me that race as we understand it now is a construction Mm -hmm. which would not have existed as it does today when Charlotte was writing Jane Eyre. Indeed not. A singular notion dawned upon me. I doubted not, had never doubted, that if Mr. Reed had been alive, he would have treated me kindly. And now, as I sat looking at the white bed and overshadowed walls, occasionally also turning a fascinated eye towards the dimly gleaming mirror, I began to recall what I had heard of dead men, troubled in their graves, by the violation of their last wishes, revisiting the earth to punish the perjured and avenge the oppressed. And I thought Mr. Reed's spirit, harassed by the wrongs of his sister's <laughs> child might quit its abode, whether in the church vault or in the unknown world of the departed, and rise before me in this chamber. She's having vengeance fantasies. I know, I love her so much. Very much the main character of her own novel. Totally. Fittingly, as she is the main character of this novel. <laughs> Indeed. I wiped my tears and hushed my sobs, fearful lest any sign of violent grief might waken a preternatural voice to comfort me, or elicit from the gloom some hallowed face bending over me with strange pity. This idea, consolatory in theory, I felt would be terrible if realized. With all my might, I endeavored to stifle it. I endeavored to be firm. Shaking my hair from my eyes, I lifted my head and tried to look boldly round the dark room. At this moment, a light gleamed on the wall. Was it, I asked myself, a ray from the moon penetrating some aperture in the blind? No. Moonlight was still, and this stirred. Mm. While I gazed, it glided up to the ceiling and quivered over my head. I can now conjecture readily that this streak of light was, in all likelihood, a gleam from a lantern carried by someone across the lawn. But then, prepared as my mind was for horror, shaken as my nerves were by agitation, I thought the swift darting beam was a herald of some coming vision from another world. My heart beat thick 
awake. My head grew hot. A sound filled my ears, which I deemed the rushing of wings. Something seemed near me. I was oppressed, suffocated. Endurance broke down. I uttered a wild, involuntary cry. I rushed to the door and shook the lock in desperate effort. Steps came running along the outer passage. The key turned. Bessie and Abbott entered. Miss Eyre, are you ill? said Bessie. What a dreadful noise. It went quite through me, exclaimed Abbott. Take me out. Let me go into the nursery, was my cry. What for? Are you hurt? Have you seen something? Again, demanded Bessie. Oh, I saw a light, and I thought a ghost would come. I had now got hold of Bessie's hand, and she did not snatch it from me. She has screamed out on purpose, declared Abbott in some disgust, and what a scream. If she had been in great pain, one would have excused it, but she only wanted to bring us all here. I know her naughty tricks. What is all this? demanded another voice, preemptorily, and Mrs. Reed came along the corridor, her cap flying wide, her gown rustling stormily. Abbott and Bessie, I believe I gave you orders that Jane Eyre should be left in the red room till I came to her myself. Miss Jane screamed so loud, ma'am, pleaded Bessie. Let her go, was the only answer. Loose Bessie's hand, child. You cannot succeed in getting out by these means, be assured. I abhor artifice, particularly in children. It is my duty to show you that tricks will not answer. You will now stay here an hour longer, and it is only on condition of perfect submission and stillness that I shall liberate you then. Oh, aunt, have pity. Forgive me. I cannot endure it. Let me be punished some other way. I shall be killed if... Silence. This violence is almost repulsive. And so no doubt she felt it. There was a precocious actress in her eyes. She sincerely looked on me as a compound of virulent passions, mean spirit, and dangerous duplicity. Bessie and Abbott, having retreated, Mrs. Reed, impatient of my now frantic anguish and wild sobs, abruptly thrust me back and locked me in without far further parley. I heard her sweeping away, and soon after she was gone, I supposed I had a species of fit. Unconsciousness closed the scene. Ugh. I got chills just listening to you read it. So spooky. So spooky. And like they get it so right. Like a child scaring themselves with their own imagination. I know. My heart beat thick. My head grew hot. I'm like, I've felt that way. I've scared myself like that. Ugh. So good. Oh, Jesus. Reflections on chapter two. The idea that like her uncle would have loved her and like the consolation that she takes from that. And then creating a, a fantasy father. Uh, that's going to come back up. Uh, yeah, it is in a big way. But then one who would like be angered on her behalf. And then like the idea of his specter, like of his ghost is terrifying. And so like then the like consolation and love then is like mixed with this unholy terror. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Oh my God. And like. And like avenging. Yes. Like, love as an expression of, you know, retaliation. Like, Jane is already kind of, yes, yes. Like, Jane is already kind of rejecting this idea of the ethereal world as, like, peaceful. (laughs) Yes. Or docile. Very, very good. Wow, this is a good book, huh? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, some books are canon for a reason. (laughs) Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, So please join us next time for a reading of chapter three. Womance, read along. Public domain, read along with Womance. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining and we hope you enjoyed this reading and uh, we can't wait to read with you again. Next chapter, next time. Farewell. (laughs) 